Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Imagine you're a father or mother of three kids. Your city is in the middle of a civil war. At any time, a rocket might burst through your wall. Soldiers might round your family up or kill them in crossfire. What do you do? You leave, of course. You do whatever you have to do to get your kids to safety. There will be many deadly risks along the way, but you know what's the worst? The not knowing. The constant thoughts inside your head of everything that might go wrong, everything you hope will go right. The trusting looks on your kids' faces when, in fact, they have no idea where they're going or why. Since 2001, an estimated 11 million Syrians have fled their homes. They and refugees from other troubled nations like Eritrea and Somalia have been trying to migrate westward and northward to Turkey, then to Europe. Many have died along the way. Many thousands of others have been detained in refugee camps while nations decide what to do with them. I'm here today with filmmakers Lorena Luciano and Filippo Piscopo. Their new documentary, It Will Be Chaos, airs on HBO this month. It follows Eritrean, Somali, and Syrian refugees on their harrowing journeys to new lives in Europe. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. You started filming this in 2013? Yes, we started filming in 2013, but the... Uh original idea inception for the documentary was in 2011 when the first major wave of uh, refugees landing in Italy started with the Arab Spring right it was was interesting because we we also produced for television we were uh, producing a documentary for Italian national television at the border between Arizona and Mexico. It okay. was a documentary about illegal immigration into the U.S. And oh, at wow. the same time we were working on this project, we were watching the news and, and you know, witnessing uh, through the news thousands of people uh, from North Africa, from Africa in general, landing on the southern Italian shores, our home country. You were both born and lived in Italy or just... No, both of us. We were born and raised in Italy. And I have to add something to what he was saying because back in 2011, mm. we were still finishing our previous feature documentary, completely different story, a story of water contamination in the coal fields of West Virginia. Okay. So this is the iron. His working is producing something on the border between Mexico and the United States. I'm still finishing the editing of a documentary that takes place, you know, in the deep United States. Right. And you watch your home country in the middle of this first crisis that was the reverberation of the Arab Spring. We were raised in a country where we grew up. Italy was didn't know about the migration. We went to school and basically we were all white, all Catholic, all speaking the same language. We were gotcha. not, we were the generation that were, we didn't experience, not even, we can't even talk about, you know, mixing and integration, it's beyond that. So that was very interesting to it's a w wake up call to see this is happening in our, in our own country. And uh, we really felt that we, we had to, to go and see and tell the story and bring it back. Because after you live in a country that is not yours, you really have that feeling of, of course, we are, it's not comparable, our, our experience right. to those. But still, you, you know the process to be in a different place, to start all over again, to learn how to navigate a system. And we have tools. We could only imagine the thousands of people arriving on the shores and finding themselves I found myself thinking as I was watching your documentary, and, we, and we'll get into the detail and the substance of what it's about, but I found myself thinking about earlier waves. You know, my family are it's half Italian, half Jewish, and the early, I was thinking of the early Jewish waves of immigration and Italian to the U.S., and the way people arrived in New York and, you know, until Jacob Rice was taking photographs of the sort of slums of the Lower East Side, the wider society wasn't really aware at all, or at least not enough of the, pro the scope of the problem and the difficulties these people were facing. Now, I don't know the numbers and I don't know the scale, so I don't know whether the crisis that we're dealing with now is like numerically significantly different, but I was certainly reminded of that. 
And then the premise, of course, is that we are Italians. We were born and raised in Italy, but we've been living in, the, in right. New York, in the United States for 20 years now. So we are, of course, we are privileged right. migrants because we could choose to come here. Right, right. But the people that we portray in our film, they had no choice, as you said, rightly so in the in the introduction. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the people that you chose to follow and the story that's going on there. Your film starts in Lampedusa with the arrival, basically a, a boat, not a raft, right? A, a boat. A boat. <laughs> that was a big boat. Coming from Eritrea, yeah? What happens is usually that many people migrate from different African countries and they all converge to Libya. Right. Libya okay. is the, the crossing point onto southern Italy through the Mediterranean, right. where many people cross. It's a deadly crossing, as you, as you said. And it's, it's good that you point out the beginning of the film, because that was uh, a very tragic situation full of pain and anguish. A boat had capsized just a mile off the coast of Lampedusa and 367 people died, mostly from Eritrea and Somalia. There were like 500 people on board and the captain lit a rag with gasoline in order to get the attention because something was wrong with the engine to get the attention of someone on shore. It was the sparkle. It was brief, but mm. people got scared. And because the boat was overcrowded, you know, everybody, they stood up. Oh, God, so they the capsized the boat. Capsized and they, no, they, and they, the they stood up and moved to one to the other side of the boat, making it capsize. And the ones on the decks who couldn't swim, they, they drowned. The other people were below decks and there was still there was air three or whatever. Right, okay. So and that was, that was a, a tragic event. Uh, again, we were already working on the film, so we were uh, knowledgeable about the, the topic. We had been traveling to Lampedusa already two years earlier. Okay. And to connect to the introduction, we, we felt at the time in 2011 that as documentary filmmakers, as Italians, we had to do something. We, we had to use our skills as, as documentary filmmakers and bring it there to our home country and work on a project, on a film. Was that a big deal for you guys personally? I mean, picking up and going and like working, investing a number of years in a project that you, like, was it funded from the beginning? Did you know that it was going to air or did you just like pick up and go to Italy and yeah. It's been challenging because we have a life, we have two young kids going to school here. So it entailed a lot of organization, a lot of traveling back and forth. And actually we did not start to film in 2013. We started in 2011 and uh, we, we really thought that, you know, we had the story. And once we found ourselves, this was back in 2011 in Lampedusa, we found out that the story that we thought we wanted to tell, and it was funded at the beginning. We had a couple of you know foundations that they gave us development grants, and we found ourselves in Lampedusa, and we couldn't do the story that at the beginning we thought we would because we understand that the way media portray the polarization, the black and white, the story was not there, at least not the story that we wanted to tell. So mm. one of the funders that supported the film was the MacArthur Foundation. Okay. So we went back and said, we can't do the story. Tell me a bit more about the black and white, what it was going to be and because why it couldn't at, be that. At the beginning, you have the idea that you go on the island and you want to know the very first idea was just, let's understand, we always see on the news, people on the boats, people on the boats, people on the boats, you know, boats coming, and then you don't know what happened, what happens next. So the idea was like, let's try to understand what happens next. But w once we were on the island, we understood that the crisis is multifaceted. It, it has different faces. So we understood that it was the tale of two crises. It's the refugees, but also is the local the hosting communities, it's the local people, right. that it's not a matter that they are racist, that they, they want them. Those are the people that have limited resources, that they are experiencing 
the suffering mm. of the deaths, that they are experiencing also the dysfunctional system that they have in the island. Because, for example, when we arrived in 2011, their only school was was shut down because the school was used to, you know, host okay. past of the thousands. We're talking so about... So there's no school or... The, the sc- kids didn't go to school. Yeah, okay. I don't remember. I think it was for two months. But that was part of... It's very easy for us to sit over here and and see this and think, of course, you must open, certainly you must help people that are in need of help, but you don't necessarily think about, I mean, that's a very, that's very real. That's the level at which you live. When your kid's school is closed, when there's not enough water, these are, these are when good people start to react badly. Absolutely. And then, and you also have to consider that Lampedusa is a very remote island, uh-huh. uh, which is geographically closer to North Africa and geologically is part of North Africa, uh-huh. but nationally is Italy. Okay. But in order to get to Lampedusa, and that leads to, you know, the production challenge of, for, for this film, uh, it's a long track. You have to, from here especially, you have to fly to Rome, but then from Rome you have to fly to Sicily, and from Sicily you have to fly another hour and a half down south oh, wow. to Lampedusa. So also in terms of the connection, the boat oftentimes doesn't leave because of the rough seas from right. Sicily. So in terms also of food and, and deliveries, it's it's complicated. So they, resources are very limited. And they, are, and they are. I think that the, the strength of our film has been the process. We took one year to be on location, okay. to understand, and then we started traveling all over southern Italy, and we started learning about all these hosting communities, and we started to you know make a lot of connections that brought us in places where usually cameras don't go, right. where usually you know you don't know anything about, and that was an awakening process because first of all we could really try to find that extra layer, the new meaning. Mm. So when the terrible shipwreck in 2013 happened, we were already well equipped to tell the story in a certain way, to englobe all these micro satellites, all these little stories, and we had that one story that could tell to help us to make and create the mosaic and tell the big picture. Because you had spent that time laying the groundwork and exactly. making those relationships. And, and, so. we, and, and especially uh, to select the right players of the film. Because the, the other right. thing is, right, right. the more we were working on this project, the more we realized that it was impossible to tell this story with only one character. It's a landscape. It's a, it's a cacophony of stories that we need to tell. And we, need to, we needed to figure out who were the main players in order to give the big picture of the refugee story. And not only the refugee one, but also the locals you know, being strangled with limited resources, right. being oftentimes being you know, left alone to fend for themselves. Uh, in order to solve problems. And the mayors, the mayors being, you know, on one side they represent the institutions, but they're not. These are human people that are trying to do right, but they're trying to be in the middle of, you know, listening to the needs of their local communities, and, and but also to do something for the refugees. And these are small communities, and, and the institutions, the real, the, the real power is so far away. They only come when people die and after two hours and the press conference they leave and the locals are left yeah there's there's an amazing scene in the office of the mayor of which which town riace riace yeah which is a town of like 1800 people or something um with 200 i think at least at the time of your filming there were 200 people uh refugees had been relocated there and there's people in the office and they're like we want can we have cable tv or whatever and 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 i believe if i'm not mistaken the mayor says his own kids don't have jobs is that right yeah yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> and, and the, the mayor the mayor of riace is is one of those people who had a vision originally he actually started envisioning uh, welcoming the refugees mm. many years earlier in 1997 with the first landing of Kurds on the southern Calabrian shores. Okay, and then he he was one of the mayors who lent a hand and and accepted to 
get the refugees in his town. And his town was actually dying right. because many of the people who used to live there migrated either abroad or to northern Italy because there was no work. There was not, you know, there was not a future for them in, in this small southern Italian town. So the schools were closing, the hospitals were closing, all the economy was dying because only the, you know, the elderly people or the retired people were staying right. in that small town. And, you know, all of a sudden with his work, accepting refugees in town, the, the, the town was reborn. So the houses that were abandoned before, he started renovating them with federal funds. Right. He started to put refugees in those houses. The schools reopened, of course, because the refugee families had kids and sometimes numerous kids uh, that were coming to the town. So they, 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 you know, they started going to school, uh, learning the Italian culture and, culture and language. The hospitals reopened as well. So that was an example of an economy that is reborn because of the influx of refugees. Some, you know, oftentimes the you know, the right-wing parties or the anti-immigrant parties. Right, right. They say know, they're coming to take the jobs. Exactly. And, right. But in that case, they contributed to the rebirth of this uh, town. 85% of the world refugees are usually hosted in neighboring countries of where crises are. So okay. what we receive as the Western world is only the 15%, and these numbers are absolutely manageable if there would be a, a, a vision in place or a policy in place that it's not. So for example, the mayor in Riace, he started with this vision and right. implemented this program. And then of course he slipped out of his hands because they it became keep dumping too big. more and yes, more people, right. Without right. enough resources and infrastructure. So for asylum seekers that stay two years without nothing, they can't travel, they can't work. Mm -hmm. So the rhetoric is they don't work, they cannot They can't work, work. right, <laughs> right, I see. And so then, then that becomes something that anti-immigrant groups can point to and say, look, see, it failed. You have a situation that is impossible because it's poorly managed at the European level, yeah. at the Italian Both. Uh, federal Both. level. Both level. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's not, again, it's not that Italy doesn't get funding from the EU. Right. they do. I mean, there are hundreds of millions of euros that are specifically geared towards the refugee situation. The, the scene that you see in the film when the mayor gets upset mm -hmm. is because <laughs> the uh, refugees are asking him to get papers. And he says, listen, it's, I'm not the Italian government. I'm just right. the, ma the mayor of a small town uh, which has already a lot of problems. So I'm not, I, can, I cannot help you. I mean, this is a different office in, a, in Rome, you know, far from here that manages the whole situation. You don't have to get upset with me I'm trying to do my best right and all the all the mayors are, are trying that just to go back to Lampedusa when the shipwreck happens uh, and also on the production level that was very challenging for us I, I went there uh, and I landed in an island that was hit by a huge tragedy both on the families of the people who perished in the in the shipwreck everyone from the Eritrean diaspora in in Europe, they were, you know, coming to Lampedusa to, mm. to figure out if their loved ones are, are, were still alive or they, they were perished in the, in the shipwreck. So I, I, I was working with my dear colleague and, and friend Nicola Bruna, the additional cinematographer and another uh, member of the crew. We find ourselves on those docks where the Italian authorities are loading the coffins of the people, right. who, or the 367 people who died onto the military ship. And that was a shocking situation to witness for all of us because we were there. Again, we felt the urge of telling this story, but at, at the same time, the emotional toll was so high. You know, seeing those Eritrean families trying to stop, physically stop, the Italian authorities from with the crane, yes, the, the, yes. lying, the trying coffins. to lie on the coffins, and yeah. you know that was very intense at the, at the point that we had to sit down. Our, our legs didn't sustain us anymore after hours of so witnessing. So it was literally emotionally difficult to and make such a film. Yeah. Exactly, and we had to sit down and we we had to cry ourselves. So in that case, as a documentary filmmaker, on one side, you, you need to tell this story. On the other hand, you have, you have to respect 
the the pain and the anguish of this family. So that was that was very complicated. And at that point, we met our guy, one of our main characters. Right. And uh, we started speaking to him, and we spoke to many of the survivors. But when we got to him, first of all, there was not a language barrier because he, sp- he was speaking very good English. Right. So we didn't need a translator or anything, anyone in between in order to communicate. He's, I, he's also very smart and articulate. He's a good, he's a good choice for that reason. Exactly. He, he can explain what he's going through. Exactly. Know? So we started speaking to him. We started meeting him on the main street in Lampedusa where people are walking and strolling and at the time he was uh, at the detention center and the migration migrant center in Lampedusa but the refugees they opened a hole in the fence okay so they were able to exit the center even if officially they couldn't and go down to the main road so street so we started meeting every day at 12 noon at the same, in the same place and we started speaking and little by little he told us his whole story, why he fled Eritrea, what happened, his journey through the desert. That was already a major journey for him. Right. And then the crossing through the Mediterranean, the fact that he was traveling with his three cousins and he lost all of them in the shipwreck. I want to add about finding ourselves in this very emotionally loaded situations as a filmmaker, you can't just go and film because you have to wonder, you're washed in pain, people have died, but also the survivors, they're gonna carry this incredible trauma to be, to have survived their family members, their dear friends, people that they've shared, not only their journey, not only the sea journey, the crossing, but also they've shared often five or six months or one year or two years before in the desert and then in, the, in, in this, you know, detention camps, torture in, uh, in, in uh, Libya. And as a filmmaker, it's been for us very complicated, the process of how we tell the story, what we want to say. You know, the level of dignity that you want to keep intact because it's very right. important not to show them you know, with the stereotype that poor them, we need to help them. These people are very strong, extremely proud, extremely resilient human beings that go through things in life and then they carry those experiences with them for the rest of their lives. So it shapes an entire generation. One of the first things that happens in the film after the shipwreck is we meet an Italian fishing family that rescued a number of people, Aragai among them, yeah? Yes. And uh, that what we see is a, is a human situation, you know, the, the fishermen themselves traumatized by what is happening, very much emotionally invested. People, people connect. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we really hope that this comes out from the film. I mean, they witness the death or the suffering of the, the refugees coming firsthand every day and this is going on for years now and even if they put borders they make a deal with Libya and then uh, the migration flow shifts uh, to the Balkans then they close everything all the borders to the Balkans and now it's coming back through the Mediterranean the crisis is here to stay there is no universal agreement we see the limits of national and and local borders tested here, and we see that there is sort of no long-term plan in place to anticipate this kind of thing, the mass movements of people. There is no kind of shared global certainty or infrastructure about what to do when this happens. Although, of course, this must happen to people and has happened historically. And that's why, in the case of Italy specifically, the refugee and migration phenomenon is always treated as an emergency. Right. So the, this Mayor Lampedusa herself was struggling and scrambling in order to manage a tragic situation like the one of the shipwreck, but it, that was not the only one. And uh, many people had landed already in, on the island at the, at the point where in 2011, uh, there was a situation where 11,000 migrants were on the island against 5,000 residents. So the, wow. the island was overflowed with many, wow. uh, many refugees or asylum seekers, uh, particularly. And uh, the government wasn't 
or e either wasn't able to or didn't want to transfer them to the mainland. So the situation on the island was completely unmanageable. But the emergency situation is a, is a very important topic to address because people think, some, oftentimes the government thinks, think that if they don't manage the crisis, they save money. But it's actually worse because if you know that this is happening, you know that this is going to go bigger and bigger. Right. It happens. So if you don't act in advance and, and prepare the situation, you end up actually using way more resources than the one that you should use. And at the end, at the end of the day, again, are the local people who are impacted by this situation, like the fishermen. And that's why we felt that we needed to uh, highlight their characters. You imagine those two brothers, uh, Lampedusa and fishermen, they come back from a night at sea right. and they witness hundreds of heads of people drowning in the water. And they try to do the best they can in order to rescue them. Right. Considering that in Italy there was a law that was criminalizing everyone who was giving any support to illegal immigration. So they knew that they were committing a crime. Well, that was crazy as well, that initially these people were charged with the crime of illegal immigration, like clear, clearly refugees, clearly escaping an oppressive country. And then the, the way it, the Italian officials are describing it in the film, it's like, well, this is the law, you know, maybe they'll be exonerated, but, you know, we have to charge them. And again, when we started speaking with the local people and with the fishermen, we asked them and they said, I don't care about the law. If I happen to see hundreds, dozens of people, you know, drowning in front of my boat, I obey the law of the sea. I must rescue them. Right. And I'm sorry, but the DA, district attorney or whoever, they make a decision to prosecute or not. The law can be the law, but if you see a boat of refugees, you have a choice whether or not to criminalize them. And, and in fact, going back to 2013, what happened was that when the engine of the boat broke down and the boat stopped, there were two boats that went through, saw clearly that there was a boat full of refugees, and they turned around and left. You can't say this because it's not being... That's what the that's what the refugees so say. So I wouldn't I wouldn't venture that yeah. there is this debate. They you know the refugees say that they see the boats. Nobody actually. Some refugees they say the, it was the coast guard they saw us, but then they saw that actually the coast guard from the radar was back in Malta. So I wouldn't venture. But this points to another this points to another issue here, which is that because all of this is happening so quickly, because there is so much chaos, because the numbers are so great and it's all sort of unofficial, it, it is difficult to get accurate journalistic details on mm -hmm. what exactly is going on. Even the numbers of people fleeing Syria, the, these sorts of things, the numbers who have died. It's, There's it's, a vacuum of, of information. It's a vacuum, but also, of course, every information can and is taken by the different parties right. and is, how do you say, shrank or enlarged. So numbers are always a question mark. So in, the, in the wrong hands, a small number can become an, a huge number of people that are ruining a country. Right. And right. So, These things get, yeah, because there's uncertainty, they can be politicized or used politically, distorted, turned into propaganda for one side or the other. Also because I have to say that the Coast Guard, people who, who work and we've been with the Coast Guard, they dedicate their lives. Many of them are this young folks, you know, that coming from all over Italy and they spend nights and they do their best to rescue these people. So it's the problem, of course, it's the management from the above. And yeah. right now that's what they're saying. We have a, a brand new populist coalition that was just sworn in last Friday. And the first thing that they're saying is when we rescue people, we bring them home and we're sending, deporting a half a million people of what they call immigrants, which is, you know, it's a lot of propaganda because right now what they say is we have to stop spending 2 billion euros when the, actually those are funds that are coming from Europe and not from the Italian taxpayers. There, there are certain things we do know and you all emphasize, and I, I think it's it's important. At the end of the film, you emphasize the fact that, for example, Eritrea is considered one of the most oppressive governments in the world, that they haven't had free elections in 
how many years? Seventeen. Uh, Seventeen. Because these are the arguments that get made, I guess, by the other side. They're like, well, these aren't really, the, you know, political refugees. They just want to immigrate to Europe. But people are fleeing war. They're free, fleeing terrible situations. And for example, in the case of the Eritreans, the Eritrean cause has been little known to the media. Yeah. You have to think that it's a very oppressive small regime with mandatory conscription. So those who flee, they are not usually willing to talk about the conditions because they fear uh, repercussions to the family members who are back in Eritrea. So oh, this, for okay. example, when we, we met the few mm. Eritrean activists that are you know, in uh, Europe, they all say that this is part of the problem because those who actually emigrate and are, are able or to get asylum, they don't talk, they fear. So our guy is an extremely brave. He too, he was at a certain point. I asked him, is there torture? He said, stop. And then I had to, you know, to stop the camera. And he said, you can't ask me that question because I have my mother there. I have you know, my sisters are there, I have all my cousins, I have the people I work with. Yeah. The, he, you jeopardize there. He, he made, even if he was very generous, he had this need to bear witness. He had this need to be so truthful to the events because uh, we understood that he was revisiting all the journey, not only the crossing, but this long journey and the people who took part of the journey in his head. It was, it was like a film for him. He just needed to talk it out, to believe that it happened and to believe that, it, that he was alive, but also to cope with that guilty feeling of the survivor, that he has survived. Yeah. And, you know, so many of us, not only his cousins, but so many of the friends that he had made the journey with died. I think it's important to emphasize this, and, and your film does tell this story that those that you follow, uh, Aragai and Wael from Syria and his family, they are quote unquote success stories in that they do end up, you know, uh, Aragai ends up in Sweden and uh, Wael ends up in Germany with his family and they're safe and they're alive and whatever. But there's no such thing as a complete success story, as you say, because they're leaving people back home. Wael at the end ends up kind of like anxious and depressed in Germany because he misses Syria. Uh, you know, they've gone through all of this to find freedom and a new life, but but it's not, you know, it's not, it can't be a complete success in that and sense. And also you, you think in the case of Wael, Wael is, uh, you know, a man in his um, early mid-40s right. and he was a salesman, pretty successful, middle class in Damascus, their own house, family, you know, beautiful wife. And all of a sudden he is in Germany, doesn't know the language, is not very skilled with all the new technology. He cannot drive. It's struggling to get a driving license because mm. it's expensive, because it's been relocated in a, in a very small place. So it's not easy What's to, he gonna do? Yeah. Like, and yeah. also he is in a small town with a lot of other immigrants and what they, the way they call themselves the other immigrants, meaning that it, they don't have connection with the real German people. Mm -hmm. And that becomes another question mark of, of course, integration is important, but also how you ignite the integration process. The, the word immigrant is very often associated like being illegal. And I'll right. give you an example. Uh, we are Italians and white, and we were immigrants, but they, we are not, nobody would tell us about being immigrants. Right? <laughs> you know, it's, we are expats right. or, or we're nothing. You're, but not, we're not, you're not the stereotype immigrants. of, 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 of actually, what people are using when they're using that word. Right? You know, and, and now we are American citizens, but we have been for so many years basically immigrants, you yeah. know, with, with but green there's not, card there's holders. But no, there's no bias. No stigma, yeah. In, yeah. Uh, in, in our case, and that's why we felt it was really important to include the statement of the mayor of Lampedusa outside the city hall when she says uh, to the yes. journalist, she says, listen, um, I don't agree with your question because those people are not 
undocumented. Those, those people are not illegals. Those people right. are asylum seekers. And that's very important that the, she pointed that out as the major humanitarian organizations are doing right now because classifying someone as an illegal migrant as opposed to as an, an asylum seeker, it, it, there's a big bias Huge there. And that's, what, and that's what, unfortunately, the populist and nationalist movements rising in Europe right now are doing. And America. So, <laughs> and Amer the American example as well, of course, unfortunately. So, of course, if you classify someone as an illegal immigrant, you are, you know, people are getting scared and they get, they're getting defensive and they think these people are now, they're going to invade our shores and steal our jobs and steal our women, right, whatever, right, right. you know, the, yeah, there's the a cluster, negative, cluster of associations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's that, unfortunately something that we need to, to fight. For example, uh, you know, a refugee is a legal status and, and by the Geneva Convention, you have the right to go and ask for asylum for religious, or political, ethnical persecution right. in your own country. You are not supposed to try to survive a deadly crossing in order to ask for asylum. And that's the big question mark. So how they're right. not illegals, they are forced to enter a country before petitioning for you know asylum because there they is have no, no other means way. of petitioning yeah they can't do it from their country and indeed i mean these crossings there's so much more to discuss here and well i just want to talk briefly about this before we get to the surprise clip second part of the show but the most heartbreaking thing for me you know the watching wael i mean i'm i'm a father of a, a 10 year old watching him in turkey Desperate to get out of Turkey. Where were they? Were, were they in Istanbul at that no, point? No, it's me. It's me. They're in Izmir yeah. at that point. Okay. Is it the Aegean coast? Yes. There? Aegean. Yeah. Yes. Aegean coast. So they're in Izmir and they're trying to get out and they're just waiting for the you know smuggler to contact them and the waves to be low enough or whatever. And they're buying life preservers. And every time they try to go, the police arrest them and take the life preservers away. And so the life preservers that they're able to afford in order to save money for the rest of their journey are not going to save anyone's life for more than three hours, right? Yes, yes. They were very poorly made life vests, and there were shops that were selling those at a profit, of course, without the asylum seekers knowing or being aware that those life vests wouldn't actually float more than five minutes. There are like sketchy profiteers all the way along this, you know, yeah. chain from the smugglers to those guys to the people getting people fake papers or whatever. And it's unfortunately the all the, this refugee crisis. It's a big business. For example, you were mentioning the police uh, sizing the the lifesavers. The police sizes the life lifesavers and resell Sell them. them back. And then when you see them. On the, in Macedonia, on the, the train, whether on the train, what happens is that, you know, Macedonia becomes the corridor between Greece, that it's Europe, but Greece just gives hands out waves for them to move because there were so many. In 2015, it was a million. Mm -hmm. So they, there was this humanitarian corridor. So they go northern Greece and then to cross Macedonia, the state of Macedonia puts the refugees on state-run trains that cost each refugee, babies included, 25 euros each. And the trains where we were traveling and when, you know, Filippo was able to film beautiful images, he had 2,000 people and there are two trains per day, so you do the math. No, it was actually four trains. The, we never talk about, oh, you know, it's, they're, they're coming and they're taking our Care resources away. Actually, they, right. in a way, they are a resource. Mm -hmm. Because it's a lot of people around working and unfortunately making money about this, you know, and, and around it, this crisis. And it was challenging in terms of production as well because uh, we were traveling on trains, we were sleeping in refugee camps with them. And when we got to this small town in Macedonia, just across the border from Greece, there was a strike of the taxi drivers because the government of Macedonia barred them from taking any refugee in 
uh, okay. taxis. So <laughs> we were like walking in a no man's land in a in a field uh, without seeing anyone, and we, we were trying to reach the the center of town and finally tractor trailer with one guy who was able to help us speaking a language that was anywhere close to any of the languages that we speak. And he brought us to the train station. So you have a, a very, very, very tiny taste of some of the confusion and difficulty that people are going through themselves trying to navigate this crazy journey. I think in the time that we have left, let's watch one okay. of the surprise clips that we have. This is uh, this clip is Jeremy Balenson. He runs the virtual reality lab at Stanford uh, University. And the clip is titled, How Experiencing Discrimination in Virtual Reality Can Make You Less Biased. Most psychologists agree the best way to have somebody increase empathy is to engage in something called perspective taking, imagining that you're someone else, trying to cognitively and emotionally understand some event from their perspective. It's hard to do that. Often we don't have the facts, meaning I don't know what's going on through your mind, I don't have an experience of what it's like to be you, and it's also very effortful. It's hard to actually imagine what it's like to be someone else. And in fact, when it comes to empathy, we're often thinking about unpleasant things. For example, what it's like to be homeless and the brain doesn't want to go there. So VR is a really neat tool because it takes that cognitive effort out. It increases accuracy so you're not operating on stereotypes you may have in your mind, but you can actually experience the life of someone else as, as that person lives. Since 2003, I've been running experiments that take a person, puts her in virtual reality, and gives her an experience that you couldn't have in the real world. This could be being in a different place or could actually be becoming a different person. So the first study we ran was about ageism and we took college age students and they walked up to a virtual mirror. And the reason we have a virtual mirror is to show the person they've become different via a process called body transfer. This is a neuroscientific process where if you move your physical body, and you have an avatar that moves what's called synchronously. That means at the same time that you move your arm, you see its arm move, and you see that in a mirror as well in the first person. Over time, the part of the brain that contains the schema for the self expands and includes this external representation as part of the body. So by using a virtual mirror and showing somebody moving with the mirror, you can literally feel like you've become someone else. You can be a different gender, a different age. Uh, you can become disabled. You can have a, a different skin color. And our first study took college-age students. We had them become older, about 60 to 70 years old. We then networked a second person into virtual reality, and there was a conversation between the two. Over time, the conversation turned to stereotypical concepts about being older. So perhaps you didn't have a good memory, and, and these stereotypes were activated in the conversation. So while wearing the body of someone else, who's an older person, I felt discrimination firsthand as a subject. And what we showed in that first study published in 2005 was that subjects who had gone through this treatment became less ageist uh, when they came out. For example, if you ask them to list words about the elderly, they were less likely to list uh, words that were stereotypical. Since that first study, we've run dozens of studies. Uh, we've looked at empathy in terms of becoming a different race, becoming a different gender, even becoming a different species. If you become a cow, how does that make you think about animals? And what our research has shown is VR is not a magic tool. It doesn't work every single time. Uh, but in general, across all of our studies, VR tends to outperform control conditions. For example, imagining you're someone else via role playing or reading about case studies. This experience of walking a mile in someone's shoes it tends to be more effective at causing empathy and behavior change towards others. At the 2018 Tribeca Film Festival, we're going to premiere a piece called Thousand Cut Journey. I'm working with Courtney Cogburn. She's a professor at Columbia, and she studies implicit bias and black-white racism. The piece is designed to show how people of color do not experience racism once or twice in their lives. It's, it's a process they go through pretty much every day. And so this piece is you start out as uh, an elementary school child, and you're in a classroom. Uh, you then become a teenager. Uh, and you're uh, interacting with police officers, you then become an adult who's going on a job interview, and what you experience while wearing the body of a black male is implicit bias that happens repeatedly and over time. 
And so that's a piece that's going to premiere in April. And what we're currently doing is running experiments to test uh, to see if it changes attitudes and what aspects of the experience are most effective at changing those attitudes. We need to connect because we need not to be scared. We need to connect. So the idea as a filmmaker is that you want to go there and you want to, what we did, for example, it was bring our cameras from a ground level so that you're there and you're not scared. But then, as you said, once you're connected, what's, you know, what do you do? What What do you do? (laughs) The relocation quotas should be the reality. You can't expect that you have, you know, so many people being accepted by either the countries like Greece, Malta, Spain, and Italy that are put upon because of their geographic proximity, this being Southern Europe or or being, you know, in in Australia or this, the border with the United States. So the idea of geographic political synergy, where you reallocate intelligently and specifically, it can be done. Right. Because space and resources are widespread. They're not concentrated in small places geographically. So this is the culprit. How many people, how many fleeing people can you take into your house? Like into your family? How many you personally, how, at what point do you say, I actually can't feed my family? So then the question is, as you say, like, what is the way to do this that it's sustain- sustainable, but at the same time, obviously, you have children that are confused and lost and suffering. You must help them. We must do something. Yeah. It can be done, as a matter of fact, Sweden, you know, Scandinavian countries, they have a lot of space. So in the previous years, they've been, they did a great job taking in refugees and they were, the program was very well organized, but at a certain point, it becomes too much even for them because everybody wanted to go there because it was so well organized, they have good resources. And then at that point, it becomes arguments between countries, which aren't necessarily intelligent arguments, more like, like, all right, we'll take this, I mean, like this terrible, horrible deal that Germany made with Turkey. Here's a bunch of money, keep them out of here, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, or or the- It was the EU, actually. The The EU EU gave 300 Billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. I think it's 300 to a country very well known for crushing all the civil and human rights right now. So you you become complicit with the wrong policy. But the same same thing is happening with Libya, with money given to Libya to stop the stem of immigration from there. But uh, you you have to consider, not many people know that Libya Libya never signed the the Geneva Convention. So there is no monitoring there by humanitarian organizations on what's happening and there are you know, claims of violence and, and you know, and uh, raids on women that are trying to cross into, the, into southern Italy that are all put in um, huge prisons over there and there's torture. I mean, I mean, the crucial thing is that the motivation for the negotiations is self-interest at the national level often rather than some sort of collective understanding of like, oh my God, we must figure out what the wise thing to do. I mean, we're just not, we're not organized that way, you know? No, and and then you have to think (laughs) uh, for the, you know, the small examples that we featured in the film, Riace is one good example. If one mayor of a small town has a vision and a great idea in order to revive his own town, why couldn't we use the same idea in other situations where the population is undoubtedly getting old, like in Italy right. and in Europe in general. In a situation like Riace, that model could function when they uh, would accommodate 50 families. Right. But once they have 200 people, even for Riace, because they have limited resources and there is not jobs for everybody, there's no resources for everybody. So the idea of the intelligence right. allocation of our re- refugees and asylum seekers can do you know, incredible big steps in moving forward It can happen at the national level. It can happen at the European level. 
worldwide level because now we're, we're thinking <laughs> about you know refugees is not only a European problem because you know it's not that the Syrian war is just a European problem right and, and if you think the Syrian war we all hope that is going to end and, and it's going to end soon but when the war in Syria will be over the refugee crisis will be still here. It's not only the Syrians that are fleeing, and they're not only fleeing for wars, because think that climate change right. is another huge factor. So we really have to gear ourselves with the different uh, with different tools and how we rethink global mobility. Because that's the answer that's right. for the future. And for the future, we too, we have two young kids. You know, it's about their future too. Yeah, I talked a long time ago to um, the thinker Richard Dawkins, who has said some very intense things against religion and so on. But he actually, what he said was that he is hoping that we will evolve as a species beyond nations toward more of a, a global organization of some kind, because we're not there yet. We're not close to there yet. I mean, the UN, if anything, seems to be in a sort of a sad shadow of its former self. So what that would look like, you know, I, I, I hope we can get there. I want to say something in specific yes, let's talk about for, for the clip that you show. And, and so your question is, thinking of that, it's like, what can be done? You all of a sudden, you put yourself, you're able with virtual reality to put yourself, in, you know, and you become in, in, in an older, an elderly person. And but what comes after that? And to me, the idea is that if a younger person is in this case, yeah. if you're able to connect and experience a situation that is way out of your daily life, right? when you go out in the world, and if you're a doctor, if you're a journalist, even if you're a cook, your daily choices of say something or donating money or you know, helping a neighbor, right. or uh, trying to 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 sparkle a conversation about politics in a certain way, the change starts from there. Who we are on the individual level is who we are on a global level. Who do we want yeah, yeah. included in our public schools? You know, you yeah. go to school, so th that is like we're doing the war about. Oh, that's my zone. We're zone for that. It's it's just the right. So it starts at a very daily local in that kind of small situation. What I say to whom I talk to. What's my? How can I? I, I how can I make the little change? I th I think that's the perfect note on on which to end this. Thank you so much, Lorena Luciano and Filippo Piscopo for coming in today. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. We, we Thank you very much for uh, the lively conversation. And their wonderful uh, documentary is called It Will Be Chaos. It airs on HBO on June 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern uh, with an encore performance on June 20th, which is also World Refugee Day. Thank you again. Thank, Thank you. you. And that's another episode of Think Again. Thank you so much for listening. If you are enjoying what you're hearing and you haven't done it before, I would really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. You can come talk to us on Facebook at Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. That's our private Facebook group. I think that it's important for everyone to talk and think about these issues. I am no expert in geopolitics, but I think these things are too important to leave to the experts, as Yanis Varoufakis told us about the economy not long ago. We'll be back next week with something completely different, and I hope you can join us.